that all Americans should care about China. First, as you know, everything is made in China, or most things. I think that about every American owes China about $1,300, uh, <laughs> at least. And I think that Nebraskans should care because China is a growing superpower, and we need to understand China. I want people in the United States to learn about the real China, not just the Chinese Kung Fu, not just Kung Pao Chicken, not just the Bruce Lee, Jackie Chen. Just go there and look at the country and to see uh, all the things happening in China. China is going through a very rapid economic development today, which I'm very proud of. And actually my hope for China is China can keep this growing tendency and create more job opportunities for not only natives, but also for foreigners. The country is really trying to improve itself. Um, I just hope the, not just America, the whole world, especially, West, especially the Western part of the world, can give the country a little bit more time. We are just under the same government for 60 years. And only until recent 25 years, we started to grow. And I think if you give maybe 30 or 50 more years, you will see a much more different, much more responsible country. Good evening. I am Lloyd Ambrosius, the Samuel Clark Waugh Distinguished Professor of International Relations in the Department of History at the University of Nebraska. Uh, it is my pleasure as chair of the program committee uh, to welcome you to this uh, Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. Uh, the forum uh, created by and named in honor of Ian Jack Thompson. Uh, is designed uh, to engage Nebraska students and all Nebraskans uh, in important issues uh, in the contemporary world. Uh, we are very grateful uh, to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing uh, generous support uh, for the lecture series. We are also thankful to the LEAD Center for their ongoing uh, partnership uh, with the Thompson Forum uh, and uh, to Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, uh, Cable Channel 21, uh, KRNU Radio, uh, and the University Bookstore uh, for their support. Before introducing our speaker tonight, I wish to inform you about next year's Thompson Forum on World Issues. Our theme for 2010-2011 is Globalization's Promise. We are scheduling a series of speakers who will address various aspects of globalization, both pro and con, in the contemporary world. They will evaluate its promise of a prosperous and democratic future for more and more of the world's citizens, and also the consequences of this modern trend, which has sometimes fulfilled the promise and at other times not or for some people, but not for all. 
The speakers will analyze the global economy with its connections of trade and finance among nations, environmental concerns, which call into question the sustainability of ever-expanding economic development, problems of protecting human rights when national governments, small groups of terrorists, and individuals uh, threaten them uh, for their own uh, power and economic advantage, global health issues, given that diseases can easily spread with the mobility and migration of the world's peoples, and the relationship between global governance and national security, for example, in halting the spread of nuclear weapons, at a time when the whole process of globalization has limited national sovereignty, and yet nation states seek their own safety against other states or hostile non-state actors such as terrorists. Our series for next year promises a variety of perspectives on the multiple dimensions of globalization. Uh, now it is my honor to introduce Rob Gifford, a PBS journalist. He is now stationed in London. Before his current assignment, he served for six years in Beijing, where he reported extensively on developments in China and on China's relationships uh, with other countries. His lecture this evening is entitled China Road, a journey into the future of a rising power. When he was in China, and he will be returning to China where he will report from Shanghai uh, later this summer, when he was in China, he traveled throughout the country and reported on what he observed for PBS. Then he wrote a book about his journey based on that firsthand reporting. Tonight, he will share his experiences in China and his insights uh, into China uh, as a rising power in the 21st century. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Please write down your questions on the cards provided by the ushers and pass them back. Now, join me in welcoming Rob Gifford to Nebraska. Thank you very much indeed, Lloyd, for that uh, warm introduction. Thank you all for your warm welcome to uh, Nebraska. My first time in Lincoln, Nebraska. I've been to Omaha once before. I'm told I should be here on a, a Saturday afternoon in the fall to get the real feel of the place. Uh, but uh, I've, I've, I've very much enjoyed being here on my short visit, and it's a great privilege to be here as part of the uh, E.N. Thompson Forum. And uh, and to talk to you a little bit about China, because uh, China has, has really taken up much of my, uh, of my adult life. Uh, I went there first as, uh, as an undergraduate in the 1980s, as a language student, and, uh, and then most recently as a reporter for NPR, uh, six years spent in Beijing. And I am, as Lloyd said, going back there to be uh, the Shanghai correspondent uh, starting from this summer. Uh, so, yes, I'm talking you, to you tonight about uh, the theme, about the journey I made uh, across China just before I left on my last tour there uh, in, as Beijing correspondent. And um, 
this is the journey you see here uh, that I took, that I did a radio series uh, about uh, and then wrote the book China Road uh, that was published a couple of years ago. Uh, and the book, uh, the journey itself, was really just a way of um, trying to get under the skin of China a little bit more than we often do in the West. I think we, we all uh, sort of have an image, uh, myself included, of what China is like. And as China changes, uh, I think it's important that we make sure that we're keeping up with the reality of China and changing uh, our views accordingly as China changes. So I was trying to, uh, there's a lot, of course, there's a lot of news about China, about the politics of China, about uh, the financial situation of China, uh, and a lot about diplomatic relations, high politics, all those kind of things. Uh, and really, uh, the book uh, and what I'm going to talk to you about uh, today uh, is not uh, focusing on those issues, because I think the one thing that we do not focus enough on, probably, when we're looking at China, is the people of China. Uh, who are these 1.3 billion people, 1.4 nearly billion people, who, uh, to, whom, to whom the 21st century is supposed to belong? And uh, so on the journey, I want to introduce you to some of the people of China. And through the prism of the road uh, that you see here on the map, uh, the road that I travel, to just ask some of the bigger pet questions about where China is going through the lives of the people who are traveling the road and, uh, and the people who are living beside it. The road is called Route 312. Uh, it runs from Shanghai all the way to the Kazakh border. It is basically the equivalent of Route 66 going across the United States, and uh, it, it takes in uh, everything, really, all the good things and the bad things about China. And I suppose that's really one of the words that uh, I would use to describe China at the beginning of the 21st century, the contradictions of the good and the bad that, uh, that we see. In the past, it was fairly one-dimensional. It was fairly black and white. Uh, we sort of knew what Maoist China was. And, you know, I think our, our image of it was in many ways correct, uh, how Chairman Mao ruled China, uh, what the situation was like in the Cold War. Now that is changing uh, unbelievably, day by day. Uh, I don't go back for six months, and, and things have changed dramatically. And, and certainly going back now, after several years in London, um, I know there will be even more changes. So I want to take you on the journey with me through, through some of the pictures uh, that I took along the way, uh, and just to, to look at some of these themes, some of these people, and some of these contradictions uh, that have become so apparent in China, and some of the fault lines as well, the fault lines that are emerging as China goes forward, because I think we think of China's rise as inexorable. I think we think it's going to take over the world somehow, maybe, and that, that we'd better just get out of the way. And I, uh, as I traveled the ro road, certainly, I think a lot of questions were raised about whether that really is the case. Is it true that China's rise is inexorable and it is going to be the next great superpower? 
Um, but before we start, I just want to introduce you to a couple of the themes uh, of, of the book and some of the themes of modern China, really. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, and uh, I want to introduce you to two, two people who I met on the road. And they really represent two of the great themes of modern China. Here's one of them. And um, he is in a tiny town just on the edge of the Gobi Desert, just by the G of Gobi there, or just below the O, in fact, a place called Jiangye, where I found myself about two-thirds of the way through the journey. And uh, I was out on the... Um, I was out on, dumped my backpack at the hotel, went out to get something to eat, and I bumped into this guy. And he, his name is Li Tai Jin, and his friend uh, is called uh, Ren Wei. And uh, we were walking, walk, walking along, and there we, they were in their suits in this two-horse town on the edge of the Gobi Desert. And we went through the usual routine. And uh, they asked me what I was doing, and I told them. And then I said, so who are you guys? And he said... Uh, we're the Gobi Desert representatives of Amway. Um, <laughs> and you do, you sort of do one of those double takes and you think, did, you, did, he, did he just say that? Um, and so I thought I'd just read you, I, I thought I'd just uh, read you a little bit about him because it'll give you an introduction to one of the great themes of modern of modern China. Um, and I should just explain, just so you understand this little section of the book, um, uh, that uh, in this town, this was the summer that um, the, the movie uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith came out, starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. So all around the, the town, in the middle of nowhere, on the edge of the Gobi Desert, there were these massive posters of Brad and Angelina, uh, globalization at its best stroke worst. Um, and so uh, they said, oh, come along to our meeting. Come along to our meeting. Uh, we're, we're holding a meeting tonight, and we're all bringing friends along, and uh, we're, we're just going to talk to our friends and try and get them to be Amway salesmen too. Uh, and, so, and, and so I go along with them, and then this is what happens. Then Renway stands up to speak. In his earnest manner, he thanks Teacher Hu, the, the leader of Amway in Jiang Air, and thanks everyone else for coming. And then before beginning his speech, he turns towards me and thanks Mr. Smith. I do one of those movie double takes in which I turn around to see if there's another foreigner called Mr. Smith sitting behind me. But it's soon clear that I am Mr. Smith. From that point onward, every speaker stands up and thanks Teacher Who, thanks everyone else, and then nods to me and thanks me, Mr. Smith, our foreign friend. Perhaps they think that all foreigners are called Mr. Smith. Or perhaps even here in the Gobi Desert, people are confusing me with Brad Pitt. <clears throat> my grandchildren will remember my name, says Runway, getting into his stride, appearing to mean every word, because I'm going to change our family's fortunes. Dwey, 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 says the audience. Yes, yes, amen. Finally, teacher who himself stands up, whereupon Runway starts a clapping pattern as though he were at a baseball game. One, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, clap, clap. You can't choose where you were born, but you can choose your future, booms teacher who, to murmurs of dwey, 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 yes, yes, from the congregation. 
Don't settle for chabudor, he says. Don't settle for more or less. It's not good enough for you. And so about 20 people in a rundown office building in a small Gobi Desert town sit and listen to a middle-aged former teacher's exposition of the Chinese dream. You too can do it. You too can succeed. You too can be empowered. You too can have the car, the apartment, the respect. The audience is listening and remembering, and they will get up the next morning and go out to work in order to realize what they have heard. For those who seize the opportunity, this is part of the seismic shift that is going on. The possibility now exists to dream dreams that might actually be fulfilled. It's starting to change China one person at a time and create a new nation, a nation of slowly empowered individuals. At the end, everyone applauds one another. Teacher Hu thanks the group for coming and says that now we'll divide into groups of five, introduce ourselves, and discuss the meeting. It's time to share, he says. Two and a half thousand years of Confucianism and 60 years of Communist Party rule mean that Chinese people are not used to sharing in a way that seems normal in an American context. The Chinese in this respect are much more like the British, if not somewhat worse, generally reluctant to open up about their emotions at all. That may be the reason that so many Brits stay so long in China. <laughs> They're just relieved to find another group of people as emotionally dysfunctional as themselves. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> About the Chinese people. <laughs> Four small groups of five, plus the rather incredulous Mr. Smith, retreat to different corners of the room, huddle together, and share. When the meeting ends, Renway and Li Tsai-jin escort me down the stairs to the front door. No need to see me out, I say but in true, supremely polite fashion, they, they insist. It's amazing what you're doing, I tell them. I've absorbed the earnestness of the evening. I mean it completely. You see, says Lee, taking me by the arm a little too firmly as we descend the echo, echoey stairs, we want to live. Right now, we're just shengtun. We're just surviving. We want to shenghua. We want to live, you know. We want to really live. Those words have stayed with me like almost no others on my whole trip across China. <clears throat> Excuse me. There could hardly be a better summary of everything that this crazy 21st century Chinese revolution is about. Okay, I'll see you in New York then, or, or Paris, or London. I smile as we shake hands. They smile back and we part at the main entrance of the building. I wander back to my hotel in the warm evening air, asking myself why on earth I'm leaving this wonderful country pondering the Chinese dream and the American dream, wondering whether one is taking over from the other. So that's the first guy I want to introduce you to. And it's the first theme, and that is the theme of hope. There are several hundred million new middle-class people in China, and they are filled with an extraordinary hope, a hope that has never really existed before on that scale in Chinese history. And it's an incredible thing to see. It is an amazing thing to see. It's on such a huge scale. And so many people are participating in this incredible economic boom and this incredible social transformation that is going on. But just a day's travel down the road 
uh, in a small little town. This place is called Xingxingxia, uh, which in, in English means Starry Gorge. It's a lovely name, Starry Gorge. This place has, is right on the Silk Road, and it is uh, the site of a freshwater well that has watered man and beast as they've traveled along the Silk Road for centuries. I was hitchhiking on one of these, on one of these trucks, and we stopped for a bowl of noodles, and I walked into one of these little noodle bars just uh, on the side of the road where all the truckers stopped to have a meal, and uh, I just said to the guy in there who was running it, um, how's life? I asked him, how's life here? And uh, it was like he'd waited his entire life for a white guy to walk in and ask him that question because uh, he absolutely exploded. Here's what he said. How is life? How is life? Life is not good. Do you know why? Because the officials have sealed up our well. The well that has given water to Xingxingxia for centuries has been sealed up with concrete. He looks up from his blackened wok, then splashes soy sauce into the stir-fry, which sizzles as he tosses it. The officials here are so evil, so incredibly immoral, it almost defies belief. But why on earth would they do that, I ask him? Because they run the local water company, and they want to force everyone to buy their water. Even when you think you know something of the venal nature of Chinese officials, stories like this can take your breath away. Lao Zhang, the, the cafe owner, says he remonstrated with them, but they would not listen. He says they used the classic post-9-11 argument of government officials in this region with a high population of Muslims. They said that if I kept on protesting, they would arrest me as a terrorist. And when you're arrested as a terrorist in China, you have no recourse, no lawyer, no protection. So Lao Zhang had to shut up, but he refuses to buy their water. Lao Zhang has a fire in his eyes that you seldom see in China. He doesn't seem like a normal cafe owner at all. In a different era, I imagine he could have been a revolutionary. But here he is in the middle of the desert trying to make a living for himself and his wife and his child. Lao Zhang and I talk for half an hour. The little cafe is baking hot, but Lao Zhang is hotter. He has more stories of official corruption, more anger at the local officials, more tales of abuse of power, Tales you will hear in every truck stop, in every village, in every town across China. He waves his arms and fumes, seeming glad to get it all off his chest. So is there nothing you can do about it, I ask him finally? He stares at me intensely, beads of sweat rolling slowly down his temples, and then he holds up two fingers. There's only one thing I can do, he says, and I can tell you what it is in two characters. From the fire in his eyes and the barely restrained fury in his voice, I honestly think he's going to say, Go Ming, revolution. But he doesn't. Run show, he says, spitting the words out between his teeth. Run show, endure. That is all we can do. Run show, endure. We can and must endure. That is all we've ever been able to do. I stare at him and shake my head. He's just summed up thousands of years of Chinese history. Endure is all that the common people have been, ever been able to do. 
for all the progress in the wealthier parts of China endure is all that hundreds of millions of people in the poorer countryside and the western regions ever seeing themselves doing in future. At certain crisis points in history, the endurance has become too much. The pressure has built up and the volcano has erupted. Revolutions have started and have overthrown the ruling dynasty. But they've not led to a change in system. They've simply replaced one emperor with another and with a new dynasty that ends up being just as corrupt as the last. There's never been any separation of powers, any linear narrative of change, any Magna Carta. Just power concentrated in the hands of a few officials, trapped in an unending cycle of history. So that's the second theme, really, of China, modern China. The despair of hundreds of millions of other people who are not participating in the boom. And both of those people are very, very real. And you meet people like those people every day of your life when you live in China. If you live in the cities, you'll probably meet less despair. If you live in the countryside, you meet it every day. And it's the tension between these two themes of hope and despair that is the thing that resonates throughout Chinese society today. Both are very real. As a reporter, it's very difficult to get the balance right. I could write a story of hope, unbelievable hope, every day of my life, every day of the, of the year. They'd all be true. But equally, I could write a, a story of despair like this one every day of my life and put it on national public radio. And every single one of those stories would be true. So which is the real China? Which of those two represents the real China? And the reality is, of course, that at the moment, they both do. And that's what I want to show you as we go back to the beginning and travel together along the road. Because the road, of course, begins in Shanghai. If you haven't been to Shanghai, may I recommend that you go home immediately this evening and book yourself a ticket because um, it is the most amazing city, I think, probably on the face of the earth. Uh, what London was to the 19th century, what New York was to the 20th, the great sort of symbol, the icon of a century, if you like. Shanghai, I think, really is in the early part of the 21st century. It's a, an amazing city. Um, and uh, it's absolutely the boom town, one of the many boom towns of China. You can see the Communist Party flag fluttering there um, over the very uncommunist scene below. This is the Bund, the old colonial buildings. This is where my uh, forebears used to uh, unload their opium ships, the British opium traders, to our very great shame, um, foisting opium on the people of China as they tried to prize open the China market. And this is where everyone wants to get to. Uh, as I say, the, the boom is moving inland now. But Shanghai really is the goal. It is, uh, and this picture is taken from my favorite restaurant, my favorite restaurant probably in the world. You just sit there and watch this all happening uh, down, down below you. And, and you, really, uh, you really can feel the buzz uh, of, modern, of modern China. And if you just went to Shanghai, you would probably think that China is going to take over the world. And China is going to be the next superpower. And it is going on to greatness uh, and, and, and not to implosion, as some people say. Why are they coming? Of course, because this is where the jobs are. 
the jobs are now moving further inland. But the Yangtze Delta, uh, somebody worked out if, if the Yangtze Delta itself were an independent country, it would have the 17th largest economy in the world. Incredible, just this area around the mouth of the Yangtze River. These are the factories where everyone's trying to get to. These are the workers. A couple of years ago, they were standing in a rice paddy. Now they are putting together your clothes and mine, the toys that our children play with. It's been well documented, of course. Uh, it's the Industrial Revolution come to China, the Industrial Revolution. Some of the factories are very, very poor labor conditions. Um, they're Dickensian. It is the Industrial Revolution. The amazing thing about China, though, is that we had more than a century for the dust to settle from our Industrial Revolution uh, before the next big, uh, next big revolution came along, the technological revolution that we're still going through. In China, they're happening simultaneously with about 100 times as many people. So the change is absolutely convulsive. Um, the change, all of these young women are on the internet, they've all got cell phones, uh, technologically it's a huge transformation. But it's a dislocation in other ways as well. It's not just a physical dislocation. The whole of modern China is being convulsed with change. It's a psychological revolution as well. It's an ethical revolution. The dislocation, the change as people shift out of a communist way of thinking to a free market way of thinking, not yet to a free democratic political way of thinking, but everything is changing ethically. The morality is changing. So anything that you can get in the West, you can get in China. Any kind of entertainment, any kind of nightclub or restaurant, Hooters Shanghai, can you believe it? Can you believe that Hooters has opened up in Shanghai? Incredible. Um, even, <clears throat> excuse me, 15, 10, 15 years ago, she wouldn't really have wanted to dress like that. You know, the way that people are changing, you know, China has traditionally been a very conservative country. And now, Hooters, Shanghai, Beijing, in all the big cities. But the flip side of that, the fact that the nightclubs are full, and the modern restaurants are full. The flip side is that the churches are full as well. So in amongst this psychological, spiritual transformation, people are just trying to find out what it's all about. What's the meaning? What does it mean to be modern? What does it mean to be Chinese? Uh, and in fact, I put in the book a, a, one of my favorite quotes about China from a from the great China scholar Myron Cohen at Columbia University, who wrote this back in the 1990s, and it still, still holds true today. For much of China's population, being Chinese is culturally much easier today than it ever was in the past. For this identification no longer involves commonly accepted standards of behavior or belief. Existentially, however, being Chinese is far more problematic, for now it is as much a quest as it is a condition. And that sums up, I think, very well uh, where China stands and where people, Chinese people, in their quest for finding out who they are and what they believe in and what is it all 
mean? And you notice this everywhere, not just because the churches are full, but because people ask. Ask, they ask you what you believe in. They ask you the bigger pictures. They ask you often, first of all, how much do you earn? You have to get used to that question. <laughs> and then, you know, often they'll ask you, what do you believe? But as the road leaves Shanghai, here it is. It's not the most modern road. Um, you could get on a freeway, every, a freeway every bit as modern as uh, American freeways. But these roads, uh, Route 312 at least, the road I chose to travel is one of the roads from the 1950s. Uh, the reason I wanted to travel it is because you can stop and chat to the villagers and the pig farmers, and on the freeways you can't. They kind of fly over the, the, uh, uh, the, the landscape, and, uh, and you don't really connect with local China, and that's very much what I wanted to do. Um, as the road leaves... leaves uh, the, the sort of megalopolis of, uh, of the Yangtze Delta, you start to see a little bit of greenery. Uh, but already in China, you, in, in Shanghai, you see one of the first fault lines that I was talking about. And that is the dependence on the economy, the dependence on the economic boom. Um, here in the United States, in Western Europe, you, if, if things are not going so well, you just vote for the other guy. In China, of course, you can't do that. The only legitimacy that the government has is economic, not the only legitimacy. Increasingly, they have a nationalistic legitimacy representing the resurgent Chinese nation. But a lot of their legitimacy is economic. So that's why they have to keep the economy growing. That's why you see these factories pumping out the smoke regardless of, of, of the environment because it's a matter of survival for the Communist Party, and that's dangerous. And many people, myself included, who I wrote my book before the economic downturn, and I said, you know, if there's a big economic shock, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily going to be the revolution, but it could cause lots of problems for China. And they just, the downturn came, we stopped buying stuff, they laid off 30 million people, nobody blinked. Didn't, ha didn't happen at all. They went back to their villages. There wasn't the social unrest that many people have feared. So the ability to absorb laid-off people clearly is greater than many people feared. But it's still there. It's always there that they have to keep that economy growing because you're going to put up with a lot, aren't you? And we've seen that throughout Southeast Asia. People put up with a lot until until the economy goes through the floor and the currency is, is uh, devalued and you lose half your savings, then the Indonesians are out on the street and President Suharto was gone within days. China's different in some ways, but it's a, something that underlies everything as you travel through China. The second fault line, though, is when you get outside the city, you don't have to travel very far, 150 miles probably, and you're back in the 16th, 15th, 14th century. A wooden plow, a water buffalo, and a farmer. And this is possibly the biggest challenge that the Chinese government faces. Uh, that what has happened in the last 20 years, since Tiananmen Square in fact, 
uh, and the de demonstrations in Tiananmen Square, excuse me, is that, is that in 89, the angry people were the urban people, the students, the intellectuals. They were angry about corruption. They were angry about all sorts of things, about some of the changes. They wanted political change that wasn't coming. But the peasants didn't take part in those demonstrations. The peasants were just emerging from the wreckage of rural Maoism, and they were actually doing okay. They just bought their first refrigerator. They were starting to buy a motorbike. They were all right. What's happened in the interim is that that situation has been completely transformed, turned on its head. Now the urban people are happy because they've been, to use a rather loaded phrase, they've been bought off with uh, the apartment and the car and the vacation in Thailand. And the new middle class are actually very happy in the cities. Now it's the peasants who are angry. And if I were the Communist Party of China, I know which I would be more worried about. A couple hundred thousand intellectuals angry in the cities, no problem, as they proved rather brutally on the night of June 3rd, 4th, in 1989. A couple of hundred million angry peasants, you've got a problem on your hands. And so what's happening now in the rural areas, as the market has taken over, and as you've started to have to pay for healthcare, pay for education, pay for all the things that you used to get for free, is that the peasants have started to get very angry indeed. And there are daily demonstrations around China. Everything from, you know, 50 pensioners uh, banging on the gates of City Hall to try and get their pensions to 50,000 people demonstrating about uh, relocation because of some uh, dam uh, being put on the river that's going to flood their homes. So this is a really big fault line, a real danger for China. The government, to their credit, are addressing it. They know they've got a problem. They, the Communist Party, emerged from a rural rebellion. That's how they came to power. So they know very well about angry peasants. And they're trying to address it. And they're trying to do something about the rich-poor gap. But you'll see a lot about that in the Chinese press. Everybody knows it's a big danger because he's got satellite television. Everybody can see what they've got in the cities. His children are working in the city. His grandchildren live with him. Everybody's gone to the city, but the rich-poor gap is really very large. And as the urban areas, the people in the cities, have actually become much more like you and me, the gap between urban China and urban America has really shrunk. But the gap between urban China and rural China has increased, and that's a very, very big problem for the Chinese government. But there is a solution in modern China. In the olden days, there was only one solution, and that was rebellion, and that's the history of China. It gets too much, as I just read from that section, it gets too much, and the peasants rise up, and they overthrow the emperor. The difference now is that there's 150 million manufacturing jobs in the coastal areas and elsewhere now, and you can get on your bike and go to the cities and find a job. There is freedom 
to move within China. Um, the comparison I often use is, with, uh, is one of a birdcage. In, in China, in communist China, um, I'm speaking about communist China in the past tense, uh, of course it's still run by a communist party, but it's not the communist party uh, of old, and to even speak of communist China, I'm not sure if we can, we can still speak about communist China in that way, but in communist China under Mao, everyone was in their little birdcage. Everyone, uh, what you did, who you married, what you thought, what you believed, was closely controlled by the Communist Party. What's happened now is that it's become an aviary. It's become much bigger. They've given space to people. After Tiananmen Square, they did this deal with an unspoken deal with the people of China. They said, if you stay out of politics, you can do anything you want. And after 40 years of of being convulsed by politics, guess what? The Chinese people bought the deal. They said, you mean I can stay out of Communist Party politics and I don't have to get involved in politics and I can go and make a million dollars selling real estate? I'll take it. They're very, very much, they very much bought, bought that deal. And so uh, now what you have is an aviary where you can move around. The government has given them space. The does government doesn't intervene in their daily life. They can still catch you if they want to, and you can't fly up into the clear blue sky, but it's very, very different from the police state of old. It's very, very different indeed. There's individualism. There's choice. Choice is a revolution in itself. What do you want to do? Do you want to go and be a hostess in a karaoke bar? Sure. Who cares? Who cares? Communist Party doesn't care. Communist Party's running most of these. Local party officials are running the karaoke bars that front as brothels. Tens of millions of young Chinese rural women now working in prostitution. The government occasionally tries to clean, clean things up and round them up and send them back home. Not really. You can do anything you want. Here, just beside the road, just a chance meeting beside the road, this lady's about to get married. Red is the color of marriage in traditional China. She's probably had more choice about the man she is marrying than any generation of Chinese women in history. And uh, maybe not completely. I'm sure the family's had some say in it, but it's moving towards much more individual freedom. There's her chariot, and uh, that's her dowry on, the, on, the, on the, uh, the little truck in the background there. This is the great thing about Route 312. You just stop. You see something going on, stop and chat to people. And this is a bit further along, actually. Um, in the Gobi, you can see we were driving across the Gobi. There's nothing for miles around, and these five guys on bikes and we just stopped, and I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're biking across the Gobi Desert. And I said, what for? And they said, for fun. <laughs> Do what you want. This generation's parents were traveling around China, smashing up the place on the orders of Chairman Mao. Now they got out of school in July. They said, I know, let's bike across the Gobi Desert. And so they just went off and did it. But of course, as I said, 
it's not all wonderful. It's not all new freedoms. There is a very, very high cost to all of this, a very high cost. And these guys are an example of that cost, the fallout, if you like, of 30 years of scorched earth economic growth. Uh, this is in a, a small village in Hunan province, and a uh, brief history of what happened here. When the central government cut their subsidies to the local, the provincial governments in the 90s, local governments had to find a way to subsidize what they were doing. So the health bureau thought up ideas, the education bureau thought of ways to supplement their income. The health bureau decided they were going to get peasants to donate blood, take the blood, sell it to the pharmaceutical companies. They can extract the plasma and use it in vaccines or whatever, whatever they do. But, uh, and the peasants loved this. They could get, for one donation of blood, they could get about a month's salary, more than what they'd get in a month um, in the countryside from just growing rice. And so they went and did it, but of course it was done unhygienically. Somehow HIV got into the system. There's now two or 300,000 people in southern Hernan province who've been infected with HIV by a government-sponsored blood-selling um, scheme. The government, local government, doesn't want anyone to know about this, of course, tries desperately to stop people like me getting in. I had to hide in the back of a truck in order to get in here. <coughs> Excuse me. If we'd been caught, that'd have been a big problem. And um, these guys, basically, the government is just waiting for them to die so they'll stop causing problems. This is the fallout of 30 years of scorched earth growth. The blowback, the cost, the human cost is very, very high. You don't have the regulation. You don't have the legal structure, the framework. It's the Wild West. The government does what it likes, often very corrupt officials, as we heard in that section. A bit further along from here, I was sitting on a bus um, with what turned, about, turned out to be the head of the local family planning unit. China's one-child policy now just starting to change, but uh, has been enforced ruthlessly. This woman, it turned out, was the woman who actually performed the late-term abortions on women who were seven and eight months pregnant. And there's a whole, and she didn't even realize how sensitive it was. She was telling me about what she did, and she kept saying, there are too many Chinese people, as though this was some justification. Talk to the demographers. It's the most successful family planning scheme in the history of the planet. It succeeded. But at what cost to the individual women of China? At what cost? Is that worth it? And this is a question that you often find yourself asking. It's incredible what they're doing in China. But the cost is very high, and the threshold is very high. Uh, we want to build a dam. Yeah, but it's going to mean you're going to have to relocate 1.1 million people. Whatever. Just move them. So there's a very, very high cost to all of this change. As you come out of the rural areas, you come out of the sea of rural poverty, really, into the urban areas. This is Xi'an, the ancient capital. 
the old wall. You could still march an army down it. I love the, the wall, the old wall of Xi'an. Um, this is just a third of the way across. Here is the terracotta army, and uh, I'm sure you, many of you have visited it. Uh, it's an amazing sight. Hua Shan, one of the holy mountains of China, very interesting place. Um, this is an old Taoist mountain, Taoism. Uh, used to be spelled Taoism with a T, pronounced Taoism. One of the indigenous Chinese belief systems, all about finding cosmic balance, all that stuff about the yin and the yang, that all comes from Taoism. And I climbed up here with all these tourists. There were lots of students, actually. And it was in the summer vacation. And I was, sort of, I was just trying to work out what Chinese people believe. And I said to these people, so Taoism, what's that all about? And they would go, Taoism, yeah, I don't know what that is. You know, I said, but this is like, surely you're Chinese, you've got to know what Taoism is. No, no, I'm studying nuclear physics. Um, you know, <laughs> and just a little snapshot of the transformed Chinese psyche. But I was, I was determined to, uh, to find a Taoist, and then eventually... I was, uh, I was put on to, I was told there was a Taoist hermit living on Hua Shan, miles away from where the tourists are. And I got directions and I trekked for hours through the forest and I thought, I don't know if there's some hermit here. And then eventually, suddenly, I got to the end of the path and I came through this little stone gateway. He wasn't actually standing there when I walked through, but I could see that... The, the cave in the background is where he lives. And I shouted, hello, is anyone here? And out he came, Taoist hermit. And we sat down and talked about Taoism. And he said, oh, it's, you know, you need to retreat from the world. And the world is too worldly. And you need to just get back to nature. And he grows all his own vegetables. And he eats the mushrooms. And you just think, great, wow. Someone who's just not bought into this whole mad, you know, industrial revolution. So we chatted for hours, and then I had to go because I had to get on the road. I said, well, I'd love to come back, and, you know, can I come back sometime, and maybe we can chat some more. He said, sure, yeah, you can come and stay in my spare cave, um, which uh, he's got a spare cave there next to his own. And I said, well, what do I do? Can I just, I can just show up? Um, you know, I mean, you're, you're a long way off the beaten track here. You're all this kind of retreating from civilization that you've, that you've done, can I, can I, what, do I just show up? He said, yeah, just show up, or you can just call my cell phone. And, uh, and he jotted down his cell phone number on a piece of paper, and I thought, that's great. That's just great. That's just a thoroughly, a thoroughly modern Chinese Taoist. Um, Two-thirds of the way across now, and uh, you will see that she is not is not a Han Chinese. She's a Tibetan. And you start, Route 312 skirts the Tibetan plateau. And uh, this is another of the fault lines, a very uh, worrying situation. Up until two years ago, it had all gone quiet, hadn't it? Not much, hadn't heard much from the Tibetans. Suddenly, boom. A riot in Lhasa, lots of Chinese migrants killed, the Han Chinese who'd gone there to work. This area, this is Xiaxe, the town of Xiaxe, that's the big monastery of Labrang Monastery behind her there. The third most important, I think, um, 
Tibetan Buddhist monastery. This is a real problem still for China. There are ethnic minorities in China who don't want to be part of China. And um, this is, uh, we saw it last summer with the Uyghurs, the Muslims of Northwest China, and how uh, there, there was a riot there. Just when you think it's all calmed down, they've been brought in, they can, uh, you know, they're wanting to just participate in the economic boom. Suddenly, there's an explosion. It's another big fault line for the Chinese. They haven't persuaded many Tibetans and many Uyghurs to love them, to love being part of the People's Republic of China. And it's a very dangerous situation. They can control it. The People's Liberation Army is strong. Just look what they did. But as the eastern half of China is all on the internet and on their cell phones and perhaps maybe moving towards a situation where they might at some point want some kind of political reform, the western part of China is only being kept in check through the barrel of a gun. Great disparity between which way things are going in the two halves of China. I just put this in because I love the idea of the monks. They'd go, they'd go, come out of prayers at the monastery and half of them would go and shoot hoops um, outside in the basketball court with their robes on and the other half would head for the internet cafe. Um, so, praying for peace in the morning, war games online in the afternoon. Um, and uh, this, is, this is another contradiction, though. Every single small town in China has internet cafes. Everybody's online. We've seen it recently with all the stuff with Google. A lot of contradictions there. What's that all about in terms of, you know, wanting to be a modern superpower, a modern IT power, a modern commercial power. But in Xinjiang, in the northwest part of China, uh, where the Muslims were rioting last, last year, they've turned the internet off. So for nine months, there's been no internet for anyone living there. How can you become the kind of superpower, IT power that you want to be without allowing people full access to information? That's a big question, um, I think. Uh, briefly then, uh, just some stories, or one story about how wonderful it is to travel in China. Um, I, I was, there, are, there are more Christians now in China than there are members of the Communist Party. Did you know that? 65 million members of the Communist Party. They say, they say anywhere between 60 and 80 million Christians amazing what has happened. So I was interviewing some of these Christians on a Sunday morning and uh, we were waiting for the itinerant preacher to come. They don't have their own pastor but uh, he, he was due to come. And then after about half an hour the, uh, the, uh, the pastor, someone came in and said oh the preacher's not coming. He can't make it this morning. So, uh, so they all, all the faces sank a bit and they were all a bit sad. Oh no, what are we going to do? And then one of them pointed to me and said, I know, the foreigner can preach the sermon. Um, so, so you couldn't make that up, could you? I mean, they didn't even ask if I believed in God, you know. Oh, yeah, you, get up the front there. So I, uh, I did my best. I grabbed a Chinese Bible and preached 
a rather short, uh, succinct sermon um, uh, and, and left it at that. But uh, it was just a wonderful little moment. In, I mean, just in my life, quite apart from anything. I mean, you could, you could not make that up. Um, but they said, yeah, oh, yeah, no, no, you, could, you preach the sermon. Yeah, that'd be really good, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure they quite thought that once they heard the sermon, but... Um, uh, finally, two final contradictions, two final contradictions and two final uh, fault lines, I should say, real problems China faces. There is an environmental meltdown going on, in, especially in rural China, in urban China as well. And uh, we saw all the problems at Copenhagen with getting them to agree to some kind of uh, limits. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not only the Chinese, of course, many other developing countries, uh, many other developed countries, mentioning no names, um, uh, uh, res- don't, sorry, I couldn't resist, um, uh, are, are resisting putting uh, controls on their, on their emissions. Um, and uh, obviously it's a difficult debate. It's a very, you know, how much should you allow, whether you're a developing or a developed nation, how much should you allow your industrial uh, capacity to be changed or to be um, to, to have to change uh, the the levels of your emissions, uh, but China is trying to get to grips with it. But I fear I'm just not very opti- optimistic about it actually, uh, because because they have to keep the economy growing. And if you're the local official in charge of this cement factory, you know you're not. You're not going to close it down. Even if the word comes down from Beijing, you've got to close it down. We just had this big meeting in Copenhagen. You know, if you're like the local guy, and by, by closing down this factory, you're going to lose the tax revenue. You're going to put 300 people out of work who are going to come banging on your door. You're going to just do whatever it takes. Say, okay, Beijing, okay, fine. And you're just going to keep the factory open. And that's, of course... Um, the history of Chinese local officialdom, the great, one of my favorite Chinese expressions, Qianglong Ya Bugua Shi, the strong dragon is no match for the local snake. Isn't that a great, <laughs> isn't that a great expression? And that's, that's the history of China. The local officials, the local snakes, avoiding and, and not paying attention to uh, the strong dragon in Beijing. So just to finish then, here are some shots of the Silk Road. This is the Yellow River. Um, uh, We're up through the Gobi here, up into the northwest, very sparsely populated, wonderful caves uh, that used to have amazing Buddhist art in. Unfortunately, that art is now in the British Museum because it was stolen by my compatriots um, and uh, taken away. To, much to the annoyance of the Chinese people. But as a tourist destination, it's a fantastic place, northwest China. It is the old Silk Road. Um, there's this wonderful uh, sort of uh, chunk of the Rocky Mountains that has been slapped down in the middle of the desert called the Lake of Heaven. Um, it's just this amazing kind of mountain range with this great uh, lake called the Lake of Heaven. Uh, final fault line, resources resources. How are they going to get enough oil? How are they going to get enough oil? How are they going to get enough iron ore? How are they going to get enough timber, tin, manganese, you name it? They need it, but they haven't got enough of it. 
That's why they're buying up Africa and Latin America. What's going to happen if they can't get enough? People point to Japan. Look what they did in the 1930s when they didn't have enough resources. The Chinese say, no way, never going to be like Japan. But it's a big question. It's a practical question. They have to keep the economy growing. Meanwhile, the infrastructure is amazing. Amazing roads. Okay, there's not that many cars on them at the moment. Uh, there's very much a kind of build, build it and they will come mentality. But compared to a similarly remote part of uh, India or Africa, incredible. This is the guy I hitched with across the Gobi. At uh, the end of the Great Wall of China, the new middle classes out spending their money. That's the Chinese, ethnic Chinese tourists coming out to take a photo in front of Jiayiguan Fort. And these nowheresville towns in the middle of nowhere where there was nothing going on for the last, well, since, you know, Vasco da Gama and Ferdinand Magellan opened the sea route to Asia, um, you know, so you didn't need the Silk Road anymore. Now they're boom towns. The Silk Road is rising again. Looks like a suburb of Shanghai. Much more investment. China is pushing out into Central Asia. This is my bus that broke down in the middle of the Gobi, and I had to get out and hitch. The Uyghurs people, Turkic people, just like the Tibetans, many of them don't like being ruled from Beijing. And here's the Asia Mainland Geography Center, which being translated means the place in Asia that is furthest from the sea. This used to be like the ultimate indictment of what a pointless place this was, because, you know, it's the furthest place from the sea. But now, it doesn't matter. I went to Urumqi. I should have put a picture of Urumqi in, actually, in the 80s. That's the, the regional capital. Absolutely no Esville. I went back again in 2002, never mind what it's like now. It's like Los Angeles. I'm only exaggerating slightly. Um, and that's the road just to finish up with. Sorry, I've run slightly over time. Um, but uh, I just wanted to uh, actually to finish with, uh, just to summarize some of these issues uh, and just, just raise one word actually to finish with because I hope you can see some of the contradictions of modern China, some of the fault lines, some of the issues that are really troubling China and will continue to be a problem. I haven't even talked about U.S.-China relations, really, and, uh, but, I, I mean, in brief, we can feel free to ask questions. I think these problems are going to keep China busy. I don't think Chinese leaders are waking up in the morning and thinking, oh, I wonder what we can do to wrench some global power from the United States. I think they're waking up in the morning and thinking, how are we going to hold this together? They have so many domestic problems. I think we underestimate how many problems they have. And that means that while I'm not saying that it's all going to implode tomorrow, I think, I think we should be cautious about China's rise. I don't think it's necessarily inevitable. I don't think it's necessarily inexorable. Because I think the history of China tells us something, and it's that word that I really want to live, uh, leave you with, the word history. 
The history of China is the history of reunite, collapse, reunite, collapse, get invaded, reunite, collapse. And I think somehow the Chinese Communist Party thinks that it has, you know, uh, to, to use a phrase uh, that was used here in the 90s after the fall of communism, it thinks in some ways it's reached the end of history. It's managed to create a new paradigm of a one-party state with a market economy. And I'm just not convinced that that's true. Why should the future be any different from China's past when that is what China's? It's always needed a strong man at the center. How are they going to make any kind of transition to any kind of representative government? I'm not saying they have to. We're not saying they have to become like us. But it is a historical trend. It is a historical trend throughout Asia. The new middle class starts to make political demands. And they haven't yet started to do that. But they probably will. And so why is the government not starting some kind of political reform to start putting some pillars in place for of some kind of new political house to build those pillars so that it doesn't all come suddenly as it has done in the past and there are no new pillars in place so that the collapse of the ruling dynasty actually would as it always has been, often has been, the collapse of the country. I think the answer to that is partly in the road and the railroads and the, and the infrastructure that's being built that's knitting China together. Maybe that is the difference, that there is now an exit and there is a difference and there is a release valve for, urban, uh, for rural people uh, who are angry at their situation. They can get up and do something about it. But I do think alongside the massive economic and social change that is going on, the government does need to start some kind of political change. They're worried, and they should be worried, that they could un unleash something that they then won't be able to control. And they should be worried, um, of course. Just look at what happened in the Soviet Union. But I think there is a very great danger that that, that they just have to do, there comes a point where it's more dangerous not to do that than it is dangerous to do that. And I think they have to do that so that they can avoid Chinese history just repeating itself all over again. Thank you very much indeed for listening. <clears throat> Questions, uh, get cards from the ushers, uh, write your questions, and then uh, give them back to the ushers. Uh, before uh, we begin with the questions, uh, let me uh, first make a correction and then uh, make an announcement. 
uh, I was grateful to hear that Rob Gifford is flexible enough uh, that he can respond to Mr. Smith and that he can preach a sermon on Sunday morning uh, without advanced preparation. And so uh, I'm sure that he will forgive me for having identified him erroneously as a PBS reporter. You know, having, having listened uh, to his reports on NPR radio uh, over the last decade uh, from Beijing and then from London, uh, I know better, but somehow uh, I made the uh, erroneous uh, choice of words and, and said uh, PBS rather than uh, NPR. Uh, the announcement that I want to make is that uh, the book signing will be in the green room uh, the easiest way to get to the green room would be to go through the uh, doorways uh, here uh, to my right. Uh, the green room is just across the hallway uh, if you go out through uh, those doors. That will take place uh, after the completion of the uh, questions. Uh, let me begin the question and answer period with a question that comes from uh, one of the Thompson scholars, one of the students who uh, earlier had an opportunity to meet uh, with uh, Rob Gifford. Uh, if one place in China uh, were to give, representative, uh, to give a representative view of the entire country, where would it be? Wow, good question. Um, probably not Shanghai, not Beijing, because they are too, uh, too advanced and too modern. I would say a good example would be one of the s sort of second or third tier cities about, um, you know, a little way across, maybe let's, I'll show you on the map. Um, if you look there just below the road, there's Hubei, somewhere like Changsha. Maybe I would choose Changsha just because that was Chairman Mao's hometown and that would be rather symbolic. It's just there in southern China, um, in the bottom sort of southeast corner in Hunan. A city like that that, has not been part of the main boom. It's not along the coast. It's not one of the wealthiest places. But now, after 30 years of coastal growth, it's now just that wealth is starting to seep inland. And amazingly, you're starting to hear that factories on the coast have a labor shortage because people are... In the past, there was nothing inland, You'd have to go to the coast to get a decent paid job. Now that the, the wealth is spreading inland and people don't need to travel so far. So a lot of people are staying near a home, getting maybe slightly less paid job, a less well-paid job. But I would say a typical place would be a city like that in the hinterland that is now coming up very quickly. If you look at Wuhan, just above that, just below the road, the black line, just about uh, not far in from Shanghai. There's a place called Wuhan. Wuhan has just been connected with Shanghai by a high-speed rail link. So you can, previously, I think that would take about nine hours to get there. I think you can get to Wuhan from Shanghai now in about three and a half hours. You know, 200 and something miles an hour. So the boom is spreading inland this will make, this could make all the difference. It could mean that that wealth is starting to be spread, trickling down into society in those second tier cities. And so I think I would choose somewhere like, like that as most symbolic. 
Okay, one from the audience. Uh, how were you, as a foreigner, able to travel across China freely without a government guide or escort? Well, that's the aviary that I was talking about. You're just free to do whatever you want. I mean, that's exaggerating slightly, but they don't care. They don't care. I didn't go near any military installations. I didn't go anywhere particularly sensitive. But, you know, that Tibetan town, reasonably sensitive, and there are police there, and the, and the military are there. But there's lots of foreigners in China now. So, uh, you know, to travel around, it's not such a big deal anymore. I wasn't, you know, I didn't always tell people I was a reporter. Uh, I mean, if I was interviewing them, uh, I did. I said I was writing a book. But if I was just wandering around, I wouldn't necessarily advertise the fact that I was a reporter. But this is what I was talking about, the aviary, the space for Westerners to travel around. Obviously, it makes a big difference that I speak Chinese, so I could do it on my own. Um, but uh, that space that foreigners enjoy there to move around and live more freely is true on a lesser extent to, for Chinese people as well. It's a much lesser extent. They still have, obviously, more controls over them than a Westerner does. But it's un undoubtedly true that they have much more freedom to move than they ever have before. Uh, can you comment on the recent Google China contretemp in light of your observations in China? Yes, I think, I think it's very symbolic of this new nationalism. China is becoming much more confident and much more belligerent, to use a rather negative word. Um, it's not necessarily the government that hacked into those Google emails. Actually, often it's young, patriotic Chinese internet geeks, you know, who want to go and do something a bit radical. Um, but maybe it was the government. Uh, it could well have been. Um, I think there's a lot of people now, just in the last couple of days, uh, foreign journalists I know in Beijing have had their email hacked into. So there's a kind of, uh, this goes with the development uh, of China. It goes with the feeling uh, of feeling bolder. Uh, and also there is a feeling of a slight anti-Western feeling. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. In 1989, they put up a, a copy of the Statue of Liberty in Tiananmen Square during the demonstrations. That would never happen today. Uh, there is a feeling that China is, uh, is being... Uh, Trying, uh, the West is trying to contain China. There's a feeling that uh, the Western companies are trying to exploit China. Uh, there's a big, people have got big chips on their shoulders still in China, and sometimes for good reasons. Um, so I think Google's decision, though, I'm not sure it's such a big deal. I think, you know, the Chinese people often use Chinese search engines anyway. I mean, if Google has decided to do this because, for whatever reason, you know, they got a lot of flack, a lot of criticism, you know, don't do evil, well, what do you mean? Self-censoring searches in China, that hardly lives up to your reputation, does it? I'm not sure it's such a massive deal in China as it is to us, symbolically, looking from the outside. It seems to say something to us 
about China, but on the ground in China, they've got other search engines. And this is really, I think there is a tendency to think that, that everyone in China is just longing to get on the internet and look up those human rights websites when they're just not. They're, they're wanting to do the things that you and I want to do on the internet, you know, entertainment, find a better job, you know, talk to your friends. Of course, there are people who want to use the internet to overthrow the Communist Party, but they're very, very few. Most people who are on the internet are winners. They're the winners of modern Chinese reform. They're the ones who've got the laptops to go on the internet, so they're happy. It's the peasants who are angry, and they're not on the internet. So I wonder if the Google thing has been a bit inflated. I mean, there's the, the idea of a company not being in China is a big deal, because nobody else is prepared to do that. Everyone else bends over backwards and does whatever the Chinese says. So, you know, taking that stand, many people would find that admirable. But I'm not sure that it's actually a massive deal economically or, or even symbolically, as so many people say. Uh, you mentioned unification and separation as uh, a cycle uh, in China's history. How does Taiwan fit into that? Taiwan, um, yeah. I think Taiwan is a big, is a big problem that everyone's just kind of leaving to the side, and I think that is probably the best thing to to, to do about it. Um, Taiwanese people are not going to accept rule from Beijing. They've fought for 50 years for democracy. They've got democracy. It's a bit messy. It's not perfect. But nobody in Taiwan is going to say, yeah, sure, we'll accept rule from a one-party state we've spent the last 60 years opposing. So I think Taiwan is probably, it's going to be changes on the mainland that move change with Taiwan. If the Taiwanese people see that the mainland is moving towards more political change, Taiwanese people may be persuaded to have more to do with the mainland. Um, meanwhile, their economies are getting much more closely linked, but just as their economies are being more closely linked, there's much more of a Taiwanese, uh, independent Taiwanese identity developing, whereby I was just in Taiwan, actually. Um, my book's been translated into Chinese. Um, I got a letter from, sorry to give you an aside, but this will tell you something about China. We got a letter from a mainland Chinese publishing house in Beijing saying, we really want to translate your book into, into Chinese. And I thought, oh, that's great. Page two of the letter was, and here are the sections that we need you to delete. Um, <laughs> so having spent 15 years writing about the evils of Chinese government censorship, I kind of felt I probably couldn't couldn't take up that offer. So in fact, we got it translated in Taiwan. I've just been in Taiwan for the launch of the Chinese language uh, version of my book. And I was asking people, do you feel, you, do you have any connection with, me? young people don't feel like they're the same country. They feel they're a different country. So, so I think just best to just leave it for the moment. Uh, I think 
Again, China's got enough problems on its plate um, at the moment, and who knows, decades down the line, as mainland China changes, maybe that'll move towards some kind of closer integration. But unless mainland China changes, or unless mainland China invades and risks a, an all-out war with the United States, I, I don't see it changing, actually. Uh, let me combine a couple of questions, uh, and these relate to the you know, huge uh, Chinese military. Uh, what is their role? Is it uh, more uh, within China to maintain order, or uh, does China pose a threat to neighbors? I think what I said about uh, the Chinese leaders' attitude towards the United States holds also for uh, China's attitude towards its neighbors. I don't think the leaders are waking up thinking, uh, wondering which small Southeast Asian nation they can threaten this morning. Um, they are, are, once again, thinking, how are we going to hold China together uh, with all these contradictions that I've just been talking about? Uh, that said, let's be honest, let's look at the history of industrializing nations, and it doesn't really um, give us too much confidence in where China's going with all this. Um, you know, Germany, Japan, I think we kind of, where I come from, we like to think that, hey, Britain did some good as well, but frankly... Uh, the transatlantic slave trade and the, uh, and, and the human rights abuses that were part of the rise of the British Empire uh, should not be glossed over. Uh, so industrializing nations are often expansionist nations, and that should give us some cause for concern. I think the military, uh, we shouldn't overestimate the Chinese military. I think they're a long way behind decades behind the U.S. military. They're still not spending. They're spending a lot, but they're still not spending nearly as much. And as one American diplomat said to me um, before I left China, when China bought a couple of Russian destroyers, he, he, he said, frankly, that's a short morning's work for the Seventh Fleet, you know, <laughs> um, which was quite a good line, but there's some truth in it. They're not... They're not you know, the Chinese Navy has crossed the Pacific, I think, twice with problems. They have no blue water capability. They, the, the integration between the forces is still very poor. Uh, they are, but they're getting better. But I think we're not talking about the next couple of years. We're talking 20, 30 years down the line, the military of China will be more a force to be reckoned with. And we could, who knows, they may have resolved certain things internally. Uh, uh, but there's always kind of wild cards. Taiwan is a wild card. Um, and this is the main problem with China generally. It's not, as the political scientists among you uh, call it, it's not a status quo power. It's not a status quo power. It's not, it hasn't reached the point where it wants to be. There's a whole island of 23 million people it thinks belongs to it. There's, it hasn't crossed over into the political system that it probably will have forever, like Western societies have. So the fact that it's not a status quo power, I think, should 
certainly give us some cause for concern, but not immediate concern. A comparative question from a student. Uh, do you feel that India has safer, more sustainable growth compared to China? Um, well, there's a, a section in the book uh, where I'm in the middle of nowhere in Hefei in Anhui province, and I come across this Indian takeout restaurant. And there's these five guys from Madras. And you're like, what are you doing here? Say, so, oh, yeah, no, we're, we're... And they were. They were saying, the Chinese middle class... They want to eat different foods, you know, and they want it to taste. I was just like, what? What are you doing here? And we had the conversation. I, I was asking these Indian guys about, about development, and they were saying, no, well, China's miles ahead of India. Um, but as the question suggests, uh, you know, is, is it slightly more sustainable to go a bit slower? Um, it's a tricky one. I, I'm I, generally I'm not a big fan. I nor if you ask me, do I want to be a Chinese peasant or an Indian peasant? No question, Chinese peasant. There's this feeling that India's better because it's a democracy. So and it really messes with the Western liberal mind, liberal in the broadest sense. Um, that 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 we think it's a democracy, so it must be better. But I think if you look at the statistics, and I go into this in the book, you know, look at any of the statistics. Look at infant mortality. It's higher in India. Look at female illiteracy. It's higher in India. Look at all of these things. China comes out better. So what? So that a one-party state is better than a democracy? Just, you can't compute that in your Western mind. But on some levels, I think that's true. The question is, it would, is it better to do it the way India does it? I think if India did it really well, <laughs> I would say possibly yes. But the trouble is, Indian democracy doesn't give corruption-free, um, pollution-free development, it, it still has some of the massive problems that China has. So I'm not sure that Indian development is actually more sustainable. I, I totally think Chinese scorched earth development is, is not sustainable, but I'm not totally sure that India is offering the, a, a much better alternative. We'll end with this question. Uh, in your book, you mentioned that the Chinese people feel lost. What do you think would help them find themselves? Oh, wow. Um, I think they need to feel comfortable in their own skins. I think there's been so much convulsive change in the last 200 years that, as I suggested, a lot of Chinese people... They are finding who they are, but, and this is very kind of speaking very generally and in danger of sounding a bit patronizing, I suppose, but I do think it's true. I think, I think they just need to rediscover, partly rediscover their Chineseness, which they're doing. For so many years, 
Chinese history, Chinese culture was seen as the problem. And, oh, look, it was so wonderful, but look where it led us. It led us to disaster and semi-colonization and complete implosion. And so now, having trashed their own culture for 60 years, I think they're rediscovering who they are as a nation. But I also think they need to go through the final process of the dust settling, of, of going through some kind of change. And I suppose I do think that some crunch has to come because this isn't how it's all going to end, just with a one-party state, with a market economy. It isn't how it's all going to end. And I don't think it's until they've worked out what politically and culturally they're going to be uh, that, that that dust will settle and they will feel completely comfortable in their own skins. That's a rather general answer, but that's, do come and take me up on that afterwards if you want to. A couple of reminders. Uh, first, uh, the book signing uh, is in the green room uh, through these doors. Uh, we'll look forward uh, to seeing all of you uh, next year for our series on Globalization's Promise. You know, thank you very much, Rob Gibbard. <laughs>